hopefully. Okay. Well, welcome once again to Christ Pilled Conversations. This is the show where me and one of my Christ-loving friends study through one of the Gospels one chapter at a time. To be Christ-pilled is to rely on Christ for all answers relevant for living over and above any political movement, philosophy, set of doctrines, or creeds, but to be rooted in life, understanding, and all things in Christ and Him crucified. See, we are trying to see clearly a first-century Christ in a 21st-century world. Welcome all to Christ-Pilled Conversations. I have with me today an old friend of mine uh, from back in uh, Kentucky. We knew each other when we were just little little kids uh, at uh, youth retreats and camps and stu- such together. So uh, he's now uh, a preacher, and I'm preaching, and so I uh, figured we could, we could catch up and have a good conversation on the podcast. So Chase Byers, what's going on? Tell him a little bit about uh, your work. Yeah, thanks, Paul, for having me on. It's good to see you. Glad to be uh, getting to reconnect with you. Yeah, so I live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, and grew up going to church around there. And um, I trained for a little bit uh, for about almost two years at Overland Church of Christ in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, which is where Paul also originates from. And so that that's in part two where we got to know each other. And uh, I actually... Um, as a member there, his dad was one of my elders for a while, um, and so Paul and I go way back. But about three years ago now, um, almost three and a half years ago now, a brother in Christ called me from uh, the Pennsylvania Gettysburg area and asked me if I'd be interested in raising support and helping start a work in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the capital of PA, which, Paul, I didn't know that. I was always the guy yeah. that skipped skipped the capitals, so I always thought it was either <laughs> Philly or Pittsburgh. But it turns out Harrisburg is the capital. I always I always see it a lot like Kentucky. You know, people always yeah. assume either Lexington or Louisville is the capital in Kentucky. Yeah, but there were just the, Frankfurt. Yeah, no one knows about Frankfurt, um, which is not too far from where Paul and I grew up. Yeah, and so um, anyway, so I moved up here about three years ago now um, to help start this work here with a couple other folks and um, it has just been going really well. And so we, we've got about close to 30 people meeting on a Sunday, sometimes more than that, but um, the, the church here is growing and evangelism is kind of the thing that's near and dear to my heart. It's, it's the, it's the part of the work I love the most um, just as far as it kind of being fun and enjoyable. Yeah. So yeah, that's a little bit about me and the work I do. Well, we gotta we gotta talk some evangelism strategies later. We uh my my group that I'm preaching for here is about the same size, and um, that's one of the main things we're trying to focus on this year is how do we sort of reach out to um to the community and and bring the gospel. So, yeah, that that's awesome. It sounds like you're doing uh doing a lot of great work up there. Um, hope things continue to go well for you. Yeah, um, thank you. Well, I, I mean, uh, we 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 both got uh, pretty busy schedules, so we might as well just jump into the chapter. Sounds but, good to uh, me. I'm uh, I'm excited for this one. Chapter Matthew chapter four is um is is quite a chapter. So uh, let's. Uh, I've been having my guest read first. Uh, I I made the mistake in my first episode of of reading more than my guest. So I'll have you uh, I'll have you read. Uh, chapter four, verses one through 11. And then we'll stop and sort of go back through everything. And then um, I'll read verses 12 through 17. And then we'll end with you coming back to read um, verses 18 through into the chapter. All right. Sounds good. 
Yeah, it works for right. me. I, I use the new American standard. What do you use? I use ESV, but all uh, right, awesome. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Matthew 4 1. Yeah. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Okay, and so I'll, I'll read the next section when we get there, but we'll, let's just go back for now and sort of break down verses 1 through 11 um, yeah. and the, temp the temptation of Jesus, uh, which is sort of, um, uh, there, there are a few other significant things in this chapter, but this is kind of the, the, the really big thing. Um, Jesus, after being baptized by John, is led into the wilderness by the Spirit. So I wanted to ask you right off the bat, what do you make of that phrase, led by the Spirit, uh, as it relates to Jesus um, being brought to the wilderness? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So um, one of the things I love about Matthew 3 and the baptism of Jesus is you see all three uh, parts of the Godhead there, right? You've got the yeah. Father, and then you've got the Son, obviously, being baptized, and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending on him on a, as a dove and, and seeing all three of them there. Yeah. But what, what I personally see from the baptism of Jesus is, is the start of his ministry, right? The, the start of maybe even him having some authority that perhaps he didn't have before as the Spirit of God ascended on him or descended upon him. Right. And so, um, also, as kind of a bigger picture theme, as we think about the spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness, I personally also see some exodus overtones happening in this section as well. Right. Um, as just like the children of Israel pass through the Red Sea, right? Um, there, as 1 Corinthians 10 talks about that being a baptism of sorts for them, they're immediately taken where? Into the wilderness, which they're there for... 40 years, right? 40 years. And yeah. that's right. And there Jesus is also led into the wilderness um, into 40 for 40 days of temptation. Now, yeah. the spirit, I believe, um, was the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day for the Israelites. Um, and we can maybe get into that another time. But uh, as you think about God's presence leading his Israelites, leading them through the wilderness, they were to walk by the spirit and listen to him to get through the trial of the wilderness. And as long as they were relying on the spirit of God, they would have passed just fine. Jesus yeah. here in Matthew three and Matthew four is showing us that it can be done if we will walk by the spirit and put trust in the Lord. And he's going to use all of the same tools that the Israelites had to succeed in his trial. Um, yeah. Whereas the Israelites failed. So I think this led by the spirit stuff is really just mimicking some of the things that happened to the Israelites. But yet the, the obvious difference is Jesus was successful. The others were a failure. 
Oh yeah. No, I, I, I really like that um, analysis. And, and I think it's a, a consistent thing too, through um, many of the stories that you see in the old Testament that like, for instance, Abraham is asked to trust God and, and go somewhere where he doesn't, he doesn't know where he's going. Right. Um, he, he, but, but the Lord will show him. And so uh, again, it, it, the, more broadly, uh, there's the, just kind of this general theme in scripture that, um, we are not reliant on our own ways and on our own plans and our own devices, but, but rather, um, even we today are, are, are led by the spirit, um, in, in some sense that uh, in terms of, we do not lean on our own understanding, but we lean on God for, for everything. Um, so I, I feel like that you see that all throughout this, this period of temptation, um, uh, this reliance on God. Um, and it, it's, it's Jesus as he often will do culminating, um, uh, the, this pattern that you see through the whole Bible and perfecting it. Um, yeah, I, I really like that. Um, okay. So he's brought out to be tested by the devil. And so uh, again, what do you make of, cause I've read different explanations of this. Um, what do you make of why Jesus had to be tempted or, or maybe not had to be, but why was he tempted? Yeah. So this is a helpful section for me um, because I, I read passages. Um, I guess what's coming to mind is, is like the book of Hebrews where mm-hmm. um, it, it talks about the Lord being tempted or Jesus being tempted in all the same ways we are yet without yeah. sin uh, that, yeah, that's Hebrews four verse 15. And, you kind of read that and you're like, yeah, but you know, he, he was God, right? You know, he was God. Of course he was able to say no, but then you, you get these glimpses through the new Testament where it's really trying to emphasize, no, he, he gave that stuff up. Like, yes, he was deity, but he also gave that stuff up in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that goes on even in, um, not commanding these stones to become bread. Uh, I think part of it goes back to, to needing approval from the father, you know, Jesus, he, he gave up certain, abilities and certain authority. He still had authority, but he was willing to give it up to become man. And so to see him be tested and tried, it it humbles Jesus. It it, it makes him more human. It makes him more approachable for someone like me that, that wants to learn, well, how, how do I resist temptation? How, how can I go about doing that? Um, and so for me, that that's part of it. No, I I love that. I think this is where we, we, I think we miss opportunities a lot to connect with the humanity of, of Jesus. We, we often rightly emphasize his divinity, but the uh, passages like the one in Hebrews, which says that he was tempted in all ways as, as were we, and this passage, um, which makes a sort of special point of demonstrating this, um, I think really make it clear to us that, um, Jesus is not some faraway figure that we can't relate to. He experienced everything that we experienced here, um, but without sin. But it also means we have a high priest and an intercessor who sympathizes with our struggles and with Mm -hmm. our failings, even though he was perfect and never failed, but he was put to the test. Um, There was nothing that Satan has to offer that wasn't thrown at him. Um, I think that's kind of the idea of, of the temptation. I'll tell you the other thing that stands out to me as I consider baptism. Um, I, I had foster brothers and sisters all growing up, and um, one of my brothers, he was just baptized on uh, on Saturday night. Um, awesome. 
and I uh, just was just studying with him and, and talking about some of these concepts because I think sometimes people get it in their head. If, I, if I'm baptized, you know, all the problems go away, right? It's right. Just, everything is going to get so much easier. And in some ways, yes, things in some ways do get easier, but right. Jesus is a great example of, A, he was baptized to permit and to fulfill all righteousness, as I know you talked about last week. But as soon as he's baptized, that's when yeah. Satan comes. Uh, yeah. He comes to start hurling them darts. And that's what I was talking with my brother about is, you know, in some ways you're going to be on this spiritual high, but mm. Satan's coming at you to take that away. It's the parable, parable of the soils here, you know, insert yeah. that. Um, and and it, so this, this is just so relatable. Yeah. And, and something for us to take in too, it's just, it's like, if you want to do, if you're going to do something big and important, you better just expect that um, as soon as you start in on this endeavor, Satan's going to come at you and try to knock you off course. That's um, exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so in, in, uh, in verse two, we get this um, description of Jesus fasting for 40 days. And you already touched on um, some of the stuff I wanted to hit here, which is sort of the connection with um, Israel's wandering in the wilderness. Um, but uh uh, there's obviously also the issue, which a lot of, I guess, uh, people who uh, want to bring up uh, ha have certain bones to pick with scripture and don't want to take it on face value um, are going to talk about the fact that it's 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 really not humanly possible to my understanding to fast this way. Um so there, there, there have been different explanations offered for that, but they all kind of boil down to, um, well, he, he is Jesus. So he is possibly being sustained miraculously in some way, but also that's not even fully that I don't even think that that is necessary. Um, because his divinity does grant him, one would think some, uh, qualities beyond the flesh. So he, I mean, Jesus might be able to fast for 40 days where you and I can't. Um, but, but I think there is also sort of a symbolic meaning to the 40 days being a, a complete time and in correlation with the 40 years in the wilderness being a complete time of wondering. I guess I'm just, I guess I just uh, am asking what you, what you make of all that um, in terms of just the logistics of fasting for that long a period of time. Yeah. And I think you do sometimes run across some commentaries where they try to reference some crazy obscure moment where someone fasted for 40 days and lived. But as far as I'm concerned, too, I don't think that's even humanly or yeah. physically possible. So I, I don't know um, if this is just a, obviously his his miraculous nature showing through here um, or if it is simply as we don't fully understand what it means to fast fast for 40 days. Like, I feel like if someone says I've been fasting for the last 40 days, I think you would look at them and be like, Oh, they're probably eating intermittently. Maybe they're just eating a little yeah. bit to tie them over, but they still have that hunger pain there to drive them more in prayer and spiritual connection or whatever yeah. have you. And so maybe that's what's going on. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I, I read in some, uh, I just glanced at a few commentaries before this, but I read in some of them that um, some, it, it may be that he is fasting um, from food other than that, which is offered to him in, in the desert, which would be mm -hmm. not much other than just like small vegetation and insects right. and, yeah. and w water where he could find it. Um, which, you know, for all intents and purposes is a fast. Um, it, it's just not, um, we think of fasting as this very sort of strict thing. 
but it, it may not have been quite like that. Uh, it, it, we're not really certain. Um, but yeah, I, I do think though that the, the completeness of the time that he spends fasting is important though, because, um, the, the, the idea that I get is that he is basically at the end of his body's limits, uh, in terms of, uh, what he can take in terms of depriving himself of food. And mm -hmm. so he is very hungry and at his most vulnerable, uh, when Satan comes for him. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and the, the point being also, that's when Satan's going to come at us the, the hardest Yeah, is whenever we are, whenever we're maybe not physically hungry in terms of wanting food, but, but maybe some type of other temptation in our life when we're really right. stressed, anxious or, or whatever, insert whatever there, that's when we yeah. want to kind of revert back to maybe something we get pleasure out of. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So we get this first temptation then. Satan wants him to, or the tempter wants him, uh, Jesus calls him Satan later on, but he's identified as the tempter here in verse three. Um, he wants him to turn the stones into bread. So I, I've had down here that this is sort of an, a temptation. Uh, I think just generally you can look at this, this temptation passage as um, sort of a breakdown for um, different levels of, falling to temptation right in the first yeah. one you get sort of the temptation with the immediate need or the thing that you 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 want really badly in in the you know your your proximate future mm -hmm. and then in four and five we get you know the temptation to uh to self-destruct through hubris and and arrogance and then in uh you know in in uh let's see I lost my place. Oh, in verses eight and nine, you get the temptation to fully give in to and worship the powers of, of darkness. And I, I see this as maybe I'm off here, but I see this as sort of um, just applying it to sin generally in the way people fall into sin. It's like Satan comes at you with um, something that seems innocuous, but that you really want or, or feel like you need right now. And yeah. then once he gets you to do that, he will tempt you to uh, get, get into a mode of living where you are actively destroying yourself spiritually by separating yourself from God. And then once he's gotten you to do that, because even that can be remedied with Jesus, but once he's gotten you to do that, then he will ask you to, to bow before him and submit to his power. Um, and um, uh, at, at that point, I feel like there is little that can be done to bring you back um, and this, I'm, I'm just speaking generally about sin. I'm getting away from the context yeah. of, of the passage, but I, I think it sort of fits with the completeness of Jesus's temptation. Oh, does that, uh, does yeah. that make sense? It does. It makes total sense. You know, Paul, another way I've heard it put, I can't remember who first pointed this out to me, but in first John two 16, for all that is in the world, the less of the flesh, the less of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father, but it's from the world world is yeah. passing away. Also it's less. So you've got with the bread temptation, you've got the lust of the flesh yeah. um, in verses five and six, where he's on the pinnacle of the temple. And he's saying, if you'll just throw yourself down, I've heard some people call that the pride of life. You know, Jesus, yeah. oh, I'm pride. You know, I can do this. And then lastly, where Satan's telling him, I can give you all of this stuff. That would be the lust of the eyes. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. I think this is an all encompassing all around anything that can be offered was offered to Jesus here. 
And that's yeah. obviously very relatable for us. Well, and, and going back to specifically the stones to, to bread. Um, I mean, it, it obviously it, it makes sense. You've been fasting for 40 days. You're very hungry. Um, and again, like you said, uh, we applying it to us when we are vulnerable, when we are at our most spiritually hungry, because you could think about our, our inner desires as being kinds of hunger as well. Our inner desires, both for good and for ill are, are both, um, a Paul, I can't hear you anymore. Yeah, I can't hear you now. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. There it is. Okay. Well, okay. So we've had issues with audio dropping the past few weeks, and I thought I had fixed it by hard wiring in, but I guess it's my mic. I don't know. Um, sorry about that guys. Um, but I, I, I was just saying, um, the, the stones becoming bread when we are the most spiritually vulnerable, when we, I was talking about all of our inner desires are, are kind are a kind of hunger when we are, are spiritually vulnerable. That's when Satan is going to come in and try to fill that void. And it's mm -hmm. always with an invitation for us to lean on our own power, on our own understanding on our own righteousness instead of, uh, on Christ. Um, but yeah, I'm just sort of sermonizing now, but yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, I think also, I don't know what you think about verse three. So if you are the son of God command that these stones become bread, obviously yeah. Jesus doesn't do it. Um, I think there's a couple different theories on this. Do you think that this is something Jesus could have done? Oh, uh, yes, certainly. Um, yeah. I don't think there's anything really that was beyond Jesus's power. Um, I don't, I mean, I would be open to studying that, but I, I no, no, I, I, I agree. No, I agree with you. Yeah, I've yeah. heard, I've heard people try to make the case that, you know, Jesus really didn't have the, the ability to do it, but I don't, I don't think that's the case whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, he, he's done some tremendous things at this point. The spirit of God is on him from his baptism he certainly yeah. had the ability to do it, but the question is, well, why didn't he? I mean, why, what, what's wrong? What would be so wrong with him proving to Satan that he is the son of God by simply doing right. it? Well, and the way I read this too is it's almost as if, um, and I've actually seen it sort of in paraphrase rendered this way sometimes, but it's almost as if Satan is coming to him saying, if you really were the son of God, you could could turn yeah. these stones into bread. It's a right. challenge. Um, and I think when Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Um, and he'll, he'll again uh, later on say, you will not put the Lord, your God to the test as sort of uh, uh, his final answer to all these temptations. But in terms of living by the words from the mouth of God, um, I think Jesus is saying in this first round of temptations, well, this is what I came out into the wilderness to do was to listen to the words of God and to, uh, to, uh, sort of, um, again, I think it's sort of continuing that legacy that John the Baptist had of going into the wilderness to, um, 
to be away from the uh, temptations and the busyness of um, industrial city life for spiritual purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important to note, though, he's not safe from Satan there. Uh, in fact, that's where Satan is going to tempt him. Uh, so, But I think Jesus responds basically to this challenge by saying, my purpose here isn't to make my own bread and eat it. Um, it's uh, Jesus uh, came as the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven. Yeah. So he, he is the bread in some sense um, for us. And it, it was, it would be um, he would be using the powers that were at his disposal um, for a purpose that was not that he was not sent for at that point, if he would make the stones to bread, that's my yeah. take anyway. Yeah. And if I can, Paul, just kind of thinking about the original intention of this passage, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy yeah, eight in verse three. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Um, basically what he does in Deuteronomy eight, three is refers back to something all the way to Exodus chapter 16. So Deuteronomy eight, three yeah. says he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives on everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. If you go back to Exodus 16, when the manna was first implemented, when it was first given, I think this is really interesting language. Exodus 16, verse four, uh, Yahweh said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Okay, so God's going to give them a bunch of food to test them. Like, what kind of test is that? And he goes on to explain that on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily, so they're not collecting on on Shabbat. And mm-hmm. at evening, um, you know, you you you're only bringing in enough for that day, basically. Yeah. And they're told early on, if you end up collecting more than you should for that day's portion, it will spoil. And they actually go on to get more than they should. And it ends up spoiling. It looked like worms or something. It says, okay, now this is starting to make sense. It's not about the manna. It's not about the bread. God is trying to teach his people every single day. You rely on my words. My mouth is what you rely on. Not on this food that comes down out of heaven, but you rely on my word. And if you will follow it and just gather enough for the day, you will be taken care of. Follow exactly what I said is what God is trying to instill in his people. But of course they don't and they die in the wilderness. Yeah. You fast forward that to the Matthew four occasion here. And Jesus is very clear. He's following every single word of God. And so he's being taken care of as he goes through his wilderness. Yeah. Um, so I just love that, that original context because it ties in the whole testing idea as well. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. And, and it echoes with, Jesus's statements about not worrying and taking each day at a time is sufficient for the day is it is its own trouble. Um, it, it, it sometimes there are new layers that you see peeled away that reveal uh, just how rooted in that um, the, the, the Torah and in the prophets and in the Psalms that Jesus was um, and uh, everything that he's saying here goes back to, Deuteronomy, which itself goes back to Exodus. You're exactly right. Yeah, um, man, it's amazing. So um, in verse four, I mean, we've, we've been talking about this, but I just had man's highest need is the word of God. So mm-hmm. thinking about this from the standpoint of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, 
you'd think like first priority is uh, necessities, food, shelter, clothing. Um, and that's what Satan is coming at him with first. But, but in fact, as, as you just so um, eloquently laid it out um, through Israel's whole history, their, their highest reliance has been on the word of God. And so it should be for us as well. Yeah. Amen. Um, so, uh, so, but okay. So in verses five through six, though, Satan comes back at him with quoting scripture. Um, and so I wanted to ask what you make of that, that his, uh, sort of, um, I guess you could say appropriation of Psalm 91 for his, yeah. for his own purposes. Um, he will command his angels concerning you on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. So uh, a, it's just terrifying um, that, that Satan is able to, to quote scripture the way that he did. But mm -hmm. um, I don't know what to make of this, Paul. I'll, I'll throw this out there for your consideration, but this is something I've looked at in the past, but it's interesting to me what part of that verse that, Satan doesn't quote um, Psalm 91. Uh, what verse did you say it was? It's uh, verses 11 and 12. Yeah. Thank you. So as we look at that uh, for, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against his own. The end of verse 11 to guard you in all your ways. Right. Very interesting to me that that's the one part that Satan does not include. And so right. when I look at that, as I think about God's going to guard Jesus or he's going to guard me in all my ways, there was another way. Jesus was going to receive all these things that, that, that was going to be all his to begin with. Um, and Jesus is also going to be able to prove that he is the son of God, but it wasn't going to be by throwing himself down here. Um, right. it, it was going to be by going to the cross. That was the way that he had to go. Right. And that's, and, that's and, echoed perfectly in the next verse in Psalm 91, which is Psalm, which is verse 13 that says you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. So that's Jesus's purpose, not to right. demonstrate his power by throwing himself off the temple. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, yeah, I don't know if I should make too much out of the part that the devil leaves out or not, but th there no. was another way is the point. No, I think you're, I think you're right. Is that, um, it's not, Satan is quoting this as though the, the meaning of that passage were the Messiah can do whatever he wants and the angels will make sure that nothing bad happens to him because it's God's will and God's plan. And, um, and Jesus, uh, is, uh, I, I think demonstrating no, Jesus had free will. He could throw everything away if he wanted to. Um, he could destroy himself if he wanted to, which would be what he would be risking doing by throwing himself off the temple. Um, but, but his, uh, he, he was not there for that purpose. He was there to, um, you know, win the final victory over sin and death for us. Um, so, and that uh, Satan is, uh, the, 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 to me, the clear purpose of Satan's temptations here are to, get Jesus off that path um, to, yeah. to sort of thwart, thwart Jesus's sure victory. 
Yeah. And what, what's so interesting to me, so, uh, excuse me, Satan, he's called the great tempter. He's called a lion. He's called a lot of things. One of the other big words for Satan in the scriptures is the deceiver. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's the great deceiver. And so here he, he's twisting God's word to try and strong arm Jesus into doing something he should not. Right. And what's so funny to me about that, or not funny, but just real about that, is that's exactly how he started off with Eve in Genesis chapter yeah. three. He, yeah, he, it, he took God's word and he twisted it and deceived yeah. her into thinking it was something that it wasn't. And she listened. Yep. And that, yeah, that, I mean, thinking about your point earlier, Paul, about how our the word of God needs to be what we stick to. That's so important. But now it seems that the temptations of Jesus are shifting to teach us and don't let anyone distort the word of God. Don't yeah. let anybody get you thinking that it means something that it doesn't. Um, that's equally as dangerous as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly right. That uh, like is, so Jesus comes at him with scripture and Satan says, well, I can match that. I'll throw scripture at you. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Jesus, uh, comes back at him, uh, in seven with saying, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. Right. Um, so uh, again, I think that that has, a, a little bit of a almost a double meaning it's like satan is putting satan is putting the lord to the test in everything that he's doing right now just in the fact that he's tempting jesus he's also putting the lord to the test by um twisting his words uh for his own purposes um so uh, again i think it's it's a warning to all of us um that it is still possible for us to uh, you know, the idea of putting the Lord to the test in its original context was not um, uh, it, it was the idea that we would invite God's wrath and rest in the fact that, oh, well, it hasn't come yet. So we're good. Um, uh, Jesus is saying, uh, no, we're not going to test the Lord by either deviating from his purposes for me and my ministry and we're also not going to test the Lord by twisting his words and manipulating them into something that they're not. Um, yeah. Hope all that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And uh, I think, I think just again, thinking back to, to what he's quoting here, uh, Deuteronomy six sixteen, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. So, or yeah. Massa or however that's pronounced. So then it forces you to go back to Exodus chapter 17 and this was when they were complaining that they had no water to drink. And uh, one of the things Moses will say to them in Exodus 17, too, is why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Why right. do you test Yahweh? And finally, um, he goes to give them water so that they can drink. And the end of that account ends in, in uh, verse 7. He named that place Masa and Meribah because of the core of the sons of Israel and because they tested Yahweh, saying, is the Lord among us? or not. That's why it's called that place. Yeah. They were questioning whether or not Yahweh was with them when they were in the wilderness. And Jesus comes in and says, right. God is with me in this wilderness. Right. And one of I, Jesus' I, names is Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's yes. It's yes. So perfect. yes, all yep. comes together so perfectly. But as Jesus's point here is no, I, I, I don't need to do that. Yahweh is with yeah. me. He's, he's here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's uh that's so cool that's exactly right um and okay so the final temptation we get in verses eight through nine the devil 
takes him onto a very high mountain. And it's, it's not clear to me whether this is, um, whether he's physically being transported or whether he is being shown a vision of these things. Um, but either way, it uh, I don't think really, it really changes the outcome that much. Um, but Satan says to him, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. And uh, Jesus says to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Okay, so... Um, G, uh, okay, so again, as I said, I, I think I see this as um, I, the final temptation here in that it shows the end of all sin is worship and bondage to Satan. Mm -hmm. Satan will offer you everything if you will just worship him, if you will just bend the knee to him, if you will just serve him. Um, and and he'll offer it as though that's a very small thing. Um and then you find it is uh, it's much more expensive than he made it out to be. So um, I, I think I see this as being sort of the end stage of sin for all of us, just thinking about how it can apply um, to us and to our situation. It's that when, when you're first approached with sin, when Satan first says to you, make these stones into bread, you have to understand that the end of that path is complete servitude. Uh, to Satan. Um, it is uh, Satanism, whether you understand it by that name or not. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, it worship a, of the powers of darkness that you give into when you give into sin. Um, but I, I just was, you know, interested in because the, the order of temptations is different. This is something we haven't really talked about, but the order of temptations is different in Luke and in Matthew. In Luke, yeah. uh, the temple one is at the end, and in Matthew, right. this. Your, your audio cut out again. Just for like brief seconds. Not back yet. Hang on. Might kick back in. All right. What about... The, the, there we are. There we are. Oh, okay. If that happens again, just uh, jump in and say something smart. I don't know. I'll, okay, I'll, I'll try my best. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I I was just saying. Um, well, what do you think of the the difference in the order of temptations? Do you think there's a certain emphasis that's being placed in uh, in the two different accounts? Or you know, I I really haven't thought about that much. Um, I knew that that was a fact, but it was just one of those yeah. things I hadn't really thought about because they will sometimes Matthew is especially not bad about that. That's not the way to put that, but um, I've almost heard that, that it's almost like Matthew exclusively recorded things that either he heard himself or saw himself. He wasn't mm -hmm. so much an eyewitness or sorry. He was more exclusively an eyewitness. Whereas Luke, when he was writing, it was, eyewitnesses that he was recording he didn't see right. any of it for himself and so yeah odds are maybe things got shifted just a little bit here and there yeah. um from story to story so that i don't know um but maybe you've got something there that i've not thought about no i don't i i i i kind of have always said that i i actually like the order in luke a little bit more um because I, I i like something about uh ending on um jesus um saying do not put the Lord, your God to the test. And, mm -hmm. 
uh, I, I like the temple temptation being last for, uh, I don't know, reasons that I guess maybe I can't fully articulate, but I also can appreciate it this way as well, because uh, again, like I said, I think it shows the end of all sin is, is worship of Satan and his powers um, as opposed to um, just self-destruction, although that is also the end of sin as well. Right. Uh, I will say I do like the finality of Matthew's gospel with because he adds the go Satan, like, you know, get out of here. Yeah. It's just kind of the end all be all. It's time for you to go. You've had you've stayed too long. You've overstayed your welcome and I'm not yeah. giving in to you. And yeah. uh, man, may, may we all have that amount of faith and courage to say to Satan, get out of here. Um, I'm only yeah. going to worship God. Yeah. And I, it's 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 kind of a like a thing that I heard a lot growing up and kind of a corny thing on some level, but uh, the idea of when you are tempted to sin, addressing Satan as such and saying, mm -hmm. get behind me, there yeah. is actually a great deal of power to that. Uh, that's why Jesus employs it here. Um, and uh, it, it is true actually that when you resist him just on that simple level of saying not today, Satan, <laughs> um, he will flee from you, um, at least for the time being. So, um, yeah, yeah, but, but I do like the way that Luke's gospel ends this with saying that the devil, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left until an opportune time. Uh, yeah. I do like that, that Luke's gospel ends with that. It's basically saying he's, he's circling back and guess what? Yeah. Uh, it'll circle back in the form of a friend when Peter is trying to tell Jesus, you know, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to do any of that. And Jesus says, yeah. get behind me, Satan. Um, yeah. so he certainly does come back. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the Satan's work is never over. <laughs> he stays busy. Um, if it's not you, it's somebody else and it's going to be you again soon. So, right. Uh, he's, he's always tempting, seeking someone to devour. Um, so uh, then Satan leaves and in verse 11, the angels, uh, minister to him, um, which I think is, um, just an interesting idea that Jesus has divine aid and possibly divine healing of some kind. Cause again, if he has actually been fasting for 40 days, he's probably near death at this point. Right. Um, and, um, the angels come in and, uh, sort of, uh, minister to him in that way. Um, but I, I, again, I think it, it shows something that we neglect too often too, which is, um, I guess you could call it the, spiritual element of our of our faith um but just the idea that we have here we in this chapter we have satan the prince of the powers of darkness um and he's doing his thing and then we also have um angels or, or messengers um of the lord um doing their thing as well and so we can't always see the way these um spiritual forces work and interact with one another uh, but we can be certain that they are there behind the scenes doing mm -hmm. their thing. Um, yeah. I think that's yeah, almost like, indicates that. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like insert the book of Ephesians here that, that kind of peels back the curtain of some of those things that are happening. But Ephesians ends in Ephesians six by talking about putting on the armor of God saying, although there's yes. this battle and this war going on that you might not be able to see, there is armor you can put on to, to put your dukes up and, and, you know, and fight yeah. this battle with these. And we get, yeah. And we, we fully get to participate, even though we don't know 
what's we don't know exactly what's uh what's happening and uh we don't you know see these beings but we we interact with them on the combat level if we're in mm -hmm. christ yeah uh, that's defeating right. that's we're defeating literal demons <laughs> with our with our faith um and i you know that's something sometimes people get uh you know weirded out when you talk about angels and demons but i'm like but they're they're biblical though they're definitely are doing things uh, they talk about them a lot too <laughs> yeah, yeah the bible has a whole lot a whole lot to say about these things for us not to talk about them yeah yeah uh, so uh i guess i'll go ahead and read ahead uh verses 12 through um i'll go 12 through 17 sounds good now when he heard that john had been arrested he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived at Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that it was so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right. So um, a couple things here. So the, 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 the citation there is from Isaiah 9, uh -huh. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. And I just wondered what you make of that. You, you, you seem like uh, in this conversation already, we've been pretty rooted in sort of the, the original um, uh, the, the the Old Testament that is being referenced heavily in this in this chapter. So I just wonder um, if you have a, a, a take on on that on Isaiah nine. Yeah, um, actually, I'll do you one better. I'm going to go even before that uh, before okay. I, before I talk much about Isaiah nine. So Zebulun and Naphtali, um, I think, are definitely some of the unspoken of brothers of the tribes of Israel. Um, going all the way to Genesis forty nine where, of course, uh, Jacob will bless all of his sons before he dies. Um, th this is like verses 8 through 12 of Genesis 49. is all about Judah. And like even Simeon and Levi, even, even though they don't get a good blessing, they get three verses. But Zebulun, mm -hmm. here's what it says. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be towards Sidon. Okay, cool. Then Naphtali. Yeah. Uh, 4921. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. And that's it. And both of these tribes, they, they really don't go on to do a whole lot of much of anything. Uh, whenever you get into Judges and in Joshua and even, even past that, I can't really think of a, a whole lot of leaders that would rise out of those two tribes. They're right. just kind of nobodies. They, they don't really do much of anything. And even from the words of the prophecy, um, I think specifically about Zebulun, that his flank is going to be toward Sidon. It's really just setting up geographically where they're going to be. Yeah. And for these two tribes being basically a bunch of nobodies, Isaiah is prophesying that these people who are sitting in darkness will see this great light, that, that they will have a claim to fame of sorts. And of course, what Matthew is trying to point out is that it, it's going to be Jesus. Uh, Jesus is yeah. going to be that light that dawns from that area as he was raised in Nazareth, which is in that area of, of Naphtali and Zebulun, um, that 
in essence, that will be their restoration is having the savior of the world raised in their territories. And so um, that's part of my thinking on this. What, what do you think? Well, and the idea that it's called um, Galilee of, of the Gentiles or Galilee of the nations in Isaiah nine. Um, and this was, to, this is my understanding of the horror, the, the historical context of Jesus in the first century is that this was the major knock on that region that he grew up in Galilee and, and, and Nazareth as a specific location within Galilee, um, that there, there was a, a Jewish presence there, but it was greatly diluted by Gentile influence. And it was the least of all the, uh, you know, descendants of Abraham, but the, like, I like the, um, the resonance of, so you have this motif in the old Testament of God saying to Israel, you were the least of all the nations until I took you by the hand and led you out of Egypt. And God essentially says repeatedly to Israel through the old Testament, I made you everything that you are. It's only because of me that you're in the position that you're in. Um, and he keeps reminding them of that. And the, God consistently likes to take an underdog or, or something that's small and turn it into something great and use it for his glory. Um, so it makes sense that he would take these, you know, backwater, um, you know, nobody uh, tribes. And from there, that's where he's going to uh, bring the Messiah out. Yes. And uh, you, you referenced it earlier, as I think about Philip bringing Nathaniel to Jesus. Hey, we found the Christ. We found the Messiah. Right. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And of course, Nathaniel's raw reaction, can anything good even come out of Nazareth? But I love right. Philip's answer, come and see. Come and see, yeah. I, yeah, you just, you're just going to have to come check it out, okay? Because that's the yeah. only way I'm going to be able to convince you. And then when he encounters Jesus, Jesus tells him something like, uh, you know, when I saw you under the fig tree, uh, that's or what, before Philip called you, I saw you. And he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus yeah. meets him then, with his skepticism. Um, but gives him a reason to believe, even though yeah. Jesus looks so insignificant. And then I, I love that, like Jesus kind of roasts him. Then too, after he's just proclaimed his faith, <laughs> Jesus is like, "You're going to see more impressive stuff than that." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think that's that's all um, exactly right. That it, it goes with this idea that was deep in. Um, the Old Testament and in the, the Hebrew mindset, which was that uh, God takes a small thing and uses it to his glory. Um, yeah. and, and, and then I, I know uh, go, go if ahead. I can just if I can just also just throw do a throwback to when you guys covered chapter one. I don't know. Who'd you cover chapter one with? Uh, Ed Sanderson, who I, I took over this uh, position in Vacaville from. So. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So yeah. Um, when you guys got to go through that, that, that's one of those things that jumps out to me in Matthew one is all the women that are in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, they're nobodies. Yeah. Uh, a, a prostitute, you know, so two of them are prostitutes and just yeah. these nobodies, but, but God, he's kind of the God of the underdogs, as you said earlier, yeah. he, he's yeah. able to make a nobody a somebody uh, through Jesus. Yes. Yes. That's, that's exactly right. Um, yeah. The, uh, the, <laughs> we'll just say the, the literary motif of a prostitute with a heart of gold comes directly from, the Bible and it, it right. is a thing that God actually uh, loves and, and wants to uh, use for his purposes. Amen. Um, so, 
Yeah. Um, and, and then I was going to hit on too just the, the, the declaration of Jesus that Jesus begins preaching by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That, that, I'm not a Greek scholar at all, but, uh, uh, but my understanding of that in the Greek is it's something like the kingdom of heaven uh, uh, has come near or has come close um, or is close to you. Um, uh, and the idea that um, Jesus came from the heavenlies um, to earth to dwell with man. And so uh, now that he has come, even though he's ascended uh, back uh, to the heavenly realms, um, he still remains with us in some real sense that the kingdom of heaven is still near, is still close to us. Um, but I, I wanted to see what you uh, think of that. I, I, I have this bad habit where I jump all the way to um, personal application um, instead of just diving into the direct context. But um, I, I wanted to see what you, what you made of all that. Yeah. So as, as I think about Jesus, if I, I, a lot of these things, I like to just imagine if I was someone in that day and Jesus is just there teaching and preaching, what, how would I respond to that? So he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If Rebecca says, come on, dinner is at hand. That would mean yeah. it's here for me. It's waiting for me. I, yeah. I just got to do something. I just got to go to it. And so yeah. as Jesus talks about kingdom of heaven being at hand, I think he's saying it, it's here and you can go into it. It, it's yeah. right here for you to go into, but you are going to need to repent. And here's what I love about yeah. the Gospels. He explains what that means. Insert chapters five through seven. Jesus will make it very clear what it means to repent and what you need to repent right. of. Um, and he gives you the corrections too. You know, stop doing this, but instead do this. Uh, that's what I love about the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. And so he's saying the kingdom of heaven, you, you can march right into it. But only certain citizens can come in. And chapter five, he'll tell you, these are the type of citizens. These are the characteristics I need you to have. And they all fall in line with repentance. Of course, repent was just another way you can say it is to change your purpose, intent or mind. You got to change the way you look at just about everything. Um, yeah. And repent is one of those Bible words that I think we, we throw out there, but we don't always explain. And um, it means to be sorry. But it, it means to be sorry to the point that we're going to change our mind about it and, and act differently. And yeah. discipleship isn't yeah. about a, a one-time repentance. It's it's a lifetime of repentance. It's it's a it's a process. Yeah, sorry, sorry is really just the beginning of it. Like that's right. just like um, like I, I liked uh, when I talked with Jim his his explanation of, of repentances. Um, it, very similar to what you just laid out, uh, the idea of turning oneself toward the will of God, of opening mm -hmm. oneself toward toward God and His purposes, which which entails an, a, a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of life. Um, uh, yeah. So the idea is, um, be willing to be corrected, um, because your King is is close to you. Uh, the, the idea of John the Baptist going before Jesus as one to prepare the way, I, uh, this is another thing that me and Jim talked about, is um, it, it's very similar. Think about this in terms of an ancient king. They would have people that would run before them literally to make the path straight, to fill in potholes, 
to make sure that there weren't going to be any problems, make sure debris and tree branches and different things were out of the way. Um, so uh, John the Baptist came preparing the way for the king. And uh, then the king is now saying, I'm here. Um, you can come to me. Yeah, yeah no, so, that, yeah, that's exactly right. All right, so do you want to uh, read 18 through the end of the chapter to close us sure. uh, out here? We'll make some comments. Absolutely. Yeah, let's read verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to him, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Okay. So um, walking by the Sea of Galilee, he comes upon these brothers, uh, Peter uh, or Simon and Andrew. And he calls them. And then similarly, he calls James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, who are in uh, their boats with their father, mending their nets. Um, so uh, I think it's interesting, and it, there's been many comments and sermons made over uh, you know, verse 19, where uh, Jesus, um, Jesus the carpenter calls the fishermen, uh, and and says they're going to fish for for men or fish oh, for makes, people. And makes a pun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, I, I think this is it, this was interesting for me because it connected with I just preached about um, Habakkuk on Sunday evening. I preached the whole book through in one sermon, um, and uh, it was a real marathon. But it's only three chapters, so I, I squeezed everything in that I. That was absolutely necessary. Um, but one of the things that I hit there is there's this image in chapter two of Habakkuk where Habakkuk is sort of bemoaning the situation uh, that is going to befall them and saying, why do you make men like fish to be gathered into this, into this net and saying that Babylonia is going to gather up uh, Israel and they're going to praise their net and their dragnet, which are sort of images that kind of stand in for their, they're, you know, the Babylonian gods and Habakkuk is saying, you know, uh, these pagan gods are going to get all the credit for this thing. Um, when you're really running the show, why are you letting that happen? Um, and the answer at the end of Habakkuk ultimately is the messianic imagery that you find there. God says to Habakkuk, this will all work out for good. You won't live to see it all, but there is one coming who is going to set everything right. Um, and uh, I think it, it resonates with that uh, in verse 11 when he says, you'll be fishers of men. The idea is um, that we are, 
actually, I, I, I do just want to go back to Habakkuk and hit that image. Sure. It's so absolutely. It's so perfect. Um, if you go to Habakkuk chapter two, I'll have to find it here real quick, but it's a very short book. Habakkuk chapter two. Um, where is this? I'm sorry. It's Habakkuk chapter one. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. Habakkuk chapter one verses 15 or 14 and 15. Uh, he says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his dragnet. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad The he there is, is Babylon. Okay. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet for by them. He lives in luxury and his food is rich. So uh, again, the, the idea that men are like fish of the sea or crawling things, reptiles who have no ruler. Um, and, that assessment of human beings is proved fundamentally true by history and by people's moral failings. But Jesus comes and says, I am the rightful ruler and you will gather fish for me and I mm -hmm. will get all the credit. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, and maybe I'm just grasping at straws here, but I think uh, because I just preached on that, it's kind of looming okay. large in my mind and, no, Paul, I, I had not made that connection before. That That's really cool. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it just puts us in our place whenever you think of yourself as a fish. Um, I yeah. think and that's appropriate. You know, we, we are yeah. we are just we're just fish. You know, that's all we are. Yeah. And um, we're, we're being caught by the Lord. And we, we're also in a, in a way helping him catch fish. We are these fishermen. And this is just something we were talking about evangelism earlier that it, it, being near and dear to my heart. This is a passage I come back to a lot because I love mashing up the idea of evangelism with fishing. Yeah. Because um, Paul, you grew up around where I did. I know, I know your dad's a big fisherman, so I know you've been oh, with yeah. him. Um, one of the first things we do, even though there might just be two of us fishing is you don't just have two lines out in the water. You have multiple right. lines out in the water and right. you're manning different poles. And I love that idea with evangelism as well, that it's, there's more than just one line in the water and ways we're trying to reach others with the gospel. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's uh, direct contact with people. Maybe it's some other community outreach tool we're using. But having multiple lines in the water is the idea. So that's something I love oh, to, yeah. to bring up from this passage as well. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. So we're we're trying to get as big a catch as as we can. Right, big um, net. And I and I think that's uh, part of the symbolic meaning too of some of the miraculous catch that uh, Jesus. Uh, brings about for for his some of his fishing disciples uh later on in the gospels is that we're, we're bringing in a big old net we're, we're trying to anyway and if i can just use one other fishing analogy that i think just goes hand in hand with this idea of evangelism and being these guys being fishers of men patience fishing takes yeah. so much patience and i think we sometimes get it in our head we're going to have this ethiopian eunuch experience where we go out and baptize the guy in the same day but no a lot, a lot right. of teaching the gospel and being a fisher of man is being patient with others as they are learning more about what it means yeah. to follow jesus and and you know there is um sometimes it's a situation where one sows and another reaps too Right. It's like you might right. not actually see uh, the benefit or, or the, the conversion, so to speak, 
Um, but you might plant a seed in someone's mind that, that won't sprout for another decade. You know, you don't know. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I think it's so interesting in verse 20 that it, it says they uh, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. So, and it seems like all Jesus says to them is follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Um, and so they're obviously that's a powerful message in and of itself. But I also think there must have been some quality which Jesus had, which left them with no doubt. Um, they weren't, I don't think they were convinced that he was the Messiah at this point. Um, uh, and, and their, their uh, conviction on that point always seemed to be not as rock solid as you yeah. would expect. So, yeah. Sometimes but, they said it, but they didn't know what it meant. Right. And, and uh, but they they certainly seem to know without any doubt that it will be worthwhile for them to abandon everything in their lives and follow after him. Yeah. So I, I think, well, um, I think it 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 goes to uh, Jesus saying, you know, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know exactly how this works uh, or how it worked when when Jesus did it. But Jesus, uh, I think, saw in everyone um, their true heart and their true intentions. And I think he had um, pre-selected, so to speak, of people who would be right for his circle. And right. he called them and they came. Yeah. Um, and um, it's just a, an interesting kind of mysterious thing about um Jesus and the way uh, he he called them, yeah. Um, yeah. What were your thoughts on that? Well, I, yeah. So I certainly agree. They did not know everything that Jesus was at this point. Yeah. I will suggest that it, it might not have been that they'd never seen or heard of him before. Um, just from John's account, we know that yeah. Andrew apparently had been listening to John the Baptist speak. Yes. And so when he hears John the Baptist speak about Jesus saying, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world," Andrew went and grabbed Simon Peter. And then they were called yeah. to follow Jesus. And I, I'd imagine it was a similar thing with James and John, the sons of Zebedee yeah. as well. They had a vague idea of who Jesus was. Maybe they had seen him do some type of works. I don't know. But they knew enough about him to know this guy is worth leaving everything behind for. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, but with both of these folks, someone pointed this out to me before. You know, I'm like you, Paul. I like to just get as practical as I can. Uh, P- Peter and Andrew uh, are called to leave work behind to go follow Jesus. And then James and John are called to leave work behind, but also leave their father behind. Uh, Zebedee is not called, but James and John are. And so work and family. I mean, from the very beginning here of Jesus's message, you put those things behind um, and you you follow the Lord. Uh, I just love that that in this text. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I think you're right. They may have already been familiar with Jesus as a person, but it seems like there's something about this moment where, everything uh, clicks for them in terms of the life change and in terms of the following as a disciple, um, they, 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 they commit to it fully. And, and you're right. They leave behind their professions. They leave behind their, their father in the case of James and John. Um, And again, Jesus um, uh, said some things about that as well, that, that we have to be ready to leave those things behind, forsake those things um, for his sake. They, they did exactly that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, I was also going to hit uh, 
verse 23, mm-hmm. um, all, going all throughout the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And again, I think that's that that's that message that the kingdom is here. Uh, the, the kingdom is close. Uh, it's come to us um, and healing every disease and every affliction. So you have the gospel message proclaimed and you have um, miraculous signs to confirm it. Um, which is a pattern that we see uh, through the Gospels. But something that um, hit me recently, I, I think uh, I shared this on Facebook and you probably saw it, that I studied through the Gospel of Mark in one go, which is a very rewarding study. Um, something that hit me there and has hit me reading through Matthew as well that I don't think I ever picked up on before is how many people it seems like we're in need of healing um we're how uh, there are all people of every kind of affliction are brought before jesus and it seems like there's an unreasonable amount of them Uh, yeah yeah. and uh and so uh, i never really noticed that before but i i think um now when i reflect on it i'm like of course it makes sense there are as many um sick and oppressed people as there are people we we all are sick you know we all need healing we all um we all struggle against demons literal demons in some real sense um and and again i don't know the ins and outs of how all that worked then and 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 how you know that's sort of spiritual warfare behind the scenes works now but none of us are excluded from that crowd of people that that gathers around jesus wanting to be healed um that's the thing that actually brings us to Jesus is the desire to be healed. Yeah. Amen. And I mean, yeah, I don't, I think we're supposed to, we're supposed to look at um, this list and see ourselves in it. it it's yeah. not just that these physical ailments that Jesus came to, to heal, but spiritual as well. We, we all have sin sickness that, that yeah. only the Lord can heal us from. And I, I think the other purpose of, of 23, 24 and 25 is, Matthew's just setting up for us the crowd Jesus is going to have for the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, like he's got a he's got a bunch of people following him at this point. Um, yeah, and not just not just a dozen dudes, but a lot of people following him. And you would think it's at that point that Jesus is like, "Oh, great! I'll stop saying hard things and just keep everyone following me." No, he turns up the dial in the Sermon on the Mount and is like, "Okay, I've got a captive audience." Let me tell you what it really means to be a part of this kingdom and what it's going to look like. Yeah. And it, it to me anyway, the teachings of Jesus, especially in the gospel of Matthew, um, intensify as you go on through the book. And so he's going to continue to do um, miraculous signs and he'll draw crowds in that way. But then um, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he, he lays out... Um, teaching which you would imagine had to have winnowed the crowd uh down and there are there are points in the gospels where it will say many many left and and forsook him because the teachings were hard and it seems like as jesus goes through his ministry the teachings get almost harder and harder and harder until um he has few friends left at the end um yeah and i don't know as far as the you know just um the, the outline of Matthew goes, I don't know if you've gotten into that in previous episodes, but in, in chapter five, speech one is about to begin. Matthew's broken up into different speeches and he's yeah. about to give his first one. But I've always taken chapters one through four, especially Matthew being a Jewish audience, I would imagine 
he's trying to convince everybody who the king is uh, who, yes. and really who is the rightful king. So he, that's why he starts off with genealogy. I mean, even Luke waits till chapter four to get into all that stuff. But yeah. Matthew is like, no, that's, this is exactly where we're going to start. And as soon as he establishes Jesus as this king from David, he starts to tell us about this contest of two kings in chapter two, where there's a little bit of a struggle power, a power for struggle or struggle power here as well. But Jesus is what Matthew is trying to convince us. He is the rightful king. He is the one you need to be listening to. And so chapter five, here's what the king said. This is what you need to listen to. And so this is just a great setup for, um, for what's going to happen in the rest of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm very excited to get into, uh, to chapter five next week. It's, uh, and the whole sermon on the Mount, it's going to be challenging to keep the episodes from going super long talking about five, six, and seven. There's, there's several chapters in Matthew like that, uh, that is going to be hard to contain to one episode, but, um, I think we can do it. But anyway, um, man, this has been a great study. We've gone now, uh, over 70 minutes. So I think we probably call it quits here, but, um, yeah, man. Uh, really great chapter, really great thoughts. Um, and, uh, hope things keep going well for you in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, praying really for you guys over there as well. Yeah, please, please do keep us in our prayers and we'll keep you in ours. Thank um, you. all right. I'm going to end this broadcast, but thanks so much for joining us friends and join us next week. We'll be talking about Matthew chapter five with a super secret guest yet to be announced. Thank you so much.